We're going to read from Philippians chapter 1 and verse 18, if you'd like to find that in one of the Bibles that's in a seat in front of you, or preferably uh, your own Bible that you've brought. Last week we looked at um, Paul's prayer of thanksgiving, his overflowing love for the church, the fact that he's in prison and that the gospel is still reaching out into the, uh, the palace guards of the Emperor Nero. <laughs> Brilliant. This is Paul's letter of joy. Notice as we begin in verse 18 what he says about rejoicing. It's the hallmark of the Christian. Joy. Verse 18, Philippians chapter 1. But what does it matter if people are preaching from different motives, uh, Paul says earlier. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, that Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I'm to go on living in the body, this means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and that I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. We can't escape Paul's joy, can we? It's wonderful. It's amazing. He's in prison during the reign of one of the most wicked tyrants the world has ever seen. And yet he talks so much about rejoicing and joy. We'll make a comment about why he's doing that in the context of Philippians a little bit later on. But I was just struck with um, Audrey reading out that famous poem that we all love and know and have known for so many years. I don't even know if if the authorship is known or when it first um, came into the, 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 the consciousness of the church. I don't know when that happened. Somebody might. But I just want to make a comment about that poem and uh, Paul's letter of joy here and his, his repeated uh, command really to, to, to rejoice. Because I read recently an alternative ending to this footprints poem. It was amazing. So let's, let's just read this. I wasn't planning to do this. This is an extra. It says, one night I had a dream and I was walking along the beach with the Lord and many scenes uh, from my life flashed across the sky and in each scene I noticed footprints in the sand and sometimes there were two sets of footprints and other times there was one set of footprints. And this bothered me because I noticed that during the low period of my life when I was suffering from anguish, sorrow or defeat, 
I could see only one set of footprints. So I said to the Lord, you promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would walk with me always. But I've noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there's only been one set of footprints in the sand. Why, when I needed you most, have you not been there for me? The Lord replied, the times when you have seen only one set of footprints, my child, are when I carried you. And this alternative ending has God saying, don't forget the context of Philippians and joy. The Lord replied, the times when you've only seen one set of footprints, my child, it was then that we hopped. I love it. Captures the heart of uh, Paul's rejoicing. And I do think that could, we could probably do a footprints part two and just get that out there, right? It was then that we hopped. Ah, oh, love it. So we've, we, we've, we're going to finish chapter one today. Paul uh, as, is overflowing love for the church in his prayer of thanksgiving is really obvious. And now he's, he's also reflected on his time in the prison. Um, he's still in chains in a Roman prison, most likely in Rome itself. And Paul now moves from that present reality, which is a cause for joy to him, to a future reality, which is also, guess what, a cause for joy. You can't escape it. So whether in prison or not, Christ is proclaimed, therefore rejoice, he says. But now, he says, by the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he hopes for deliverance from the prison and so not to be ashamed. And we see that in verses 19 and 20. That's what he's saying. He's seeking deliverance. Now, this is where Job 13 kicks in. Paul has taken directly a line from Job's speech to his friends in chapter 13, which we read out earlier. But it's going to be slightly different in your Bibles because Paul is quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So in Job 13, Job is offering one of his many sublime speeches and responses to his three so-called friends that are sat around him, offering their oh-so-worldly wisdom about why he must be suffering. He must have done something bad, and Job knows this is not the case. Something else must be going on. So Job is countering their sound logic, but flawed fundamentally at its root. So he's arguing his case before God and before his companions. And halfway through, he says in chapter 13, verse, um, 40, uh, verse 16, he says... This will turn out for my deliverance, Job says. Paul knows this, and he says, it's the same for me. This, too, will turn out for my deliverance. And Job knows. I, I, the last time I read Job from beginning to end was the week leading up to my daughter's wedding, because I wanted to sit with Job in the ashes as my daughter was being given away to another man. But, but, Job knows that in life or death, he will be vindicated and delivered. In life or death. Paul goes on to reflect on his own life 
and his own potential death in verses 20 and 21. He says whether he lives as a disciple of Jesus Christ or whether he dies, Christ will be exalted in his body. That's the Christian life. Whether we live or whether we die, Christ is exalted. This is a thoroughly biblical way to think about these things. Christ will be exalted. So why does Paul do this? Why does he quote from Job? I, I, was, I read chapter 13 when I was preparing this and I noticed that Job had said in the verse before, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. That's the Christian life. God can do anything and be righteous towards us because God is love. And though he take our life, he is righteous and good to us. Though he slay me, Job says, I will hope in him. And you know, I wasn't going to share this, but we, we lost one of our very best friends yesterday to asbestos cancer. Um, a former missionary uh, friend of ours. Um, it doesn't come as a shock, but the grief still hits you like a train. And Andy, you've just had the funeral of your mum, and the grief hits you like a train. And others of us, that grief hits you like a train, and that's exactly what it did yesterday lunchtime when we heard the news. It wasn't a shock, and in many senses it's a relief. But Caroline knew what we know, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whether he slay me, I will hope in him. And she never, ever, ever lost confidence in that, ever. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Or he, he may take my life, he may let me live. And God is God and we are not. And we must let God be God. Anything else is idolatry. And we definitely don't want idolatry. But Paul knows the Psalms too. He knows that our days are numbered. He knows that God has counted every hair on our head. Well, looking around, most of us know that God has counted every hair on our head. There is an affection in the heart of God that we caught a glimpse of earlier when those little ones left us. Just that affection. The desire to protect at all costs those little lambs. And this is what God's love for us is like. He knows that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows the teachings of Jesus. And so there is an affection in the heart of God for people. God is affectionate toward you. And so whether he lets me live, good, I will live for him. Or whether he lets me die, gooder, I go to be with him. I know good is not a word. Put the eyebrow down, Mike. So Paul now says with sublime symmetry in verse 21, and I'm having this on my gravestone, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul says, if I live, I will live for him. If I die, I will go to be with him. Both options are really good for me. He says, with a real prospect of his life coming to an end 
It didn't at this point. He was released and had a few more years um, to manage to disciple and write, especially with Timothy. But that's for another time. Paul continues verses 22 to 25. He says, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. As long as you're living, church, this is fruitful labor for you. Being alive, to live is Christ, right? He goes on, yet what shall I choose? To live or to to die? I don't know. I'm torn between the two, he says. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. It's like, oh, we're not that great, the Philippian church could say. Because for you to die, Paul, is better by far. But Paul then says, but it is more necessary that I remain with you. It's more necessary that I remain. So Paul's okay to live his Christ and to die his gain. And isn't that what, what one of the, the hymns that we are learning as a church? That first hymn. Let me just see it on the sheet. Um, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our confidence that our souls to him belong? This is precisely picking up on that biblical idea that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, of course, for the Philippians, they don't want Paul to die. Because to live is Christ, yes, but for him to die would be their pain. They would suffer a huge loss if Paul wasn't restored to them. They don't want Paul to die. They need him to strengthen and to sustain in the spirit of Christ what the church is about now since this letter is an ode to joy as i've called it and we know that god will hop with us down the beach of our life as well as carry us paul has already twice mentioned rejoicing in verse 18 and now in verses 25 and 26 he says that whilst he suspects that he will not only survive prison and be released he says but that He will return to the Philippian church to continue his fruitful labor, his ministry of the gospel. Namely, your progress and joy in the faith. So Christian faith is not static and it's not mean and somber. Christian faith is a faith of growth for the believer in Christ, which is in joy. Jesus prays that himself, make my joy complete, that my joy may be in them and their joy may be complete. There's no escaping it. And then Paul gives his reason why. So that your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. Now for some of us, we've got friends who when we're around them, our joy in Christ overflows on account of them because of their faith. We know who they are. And I want to ask us, are we that person? Are we that person? When we're with other people, do we cause their faith to overflow with joy? So in this way, Paul is showing forth a gospel-centered self-denial. Now, it's that he's really seeking... Um, not what he wants per se, which is to be with Christ, but 
what is best for the Philippian believers. So, our culture insists that we do what is right for ourselves. It's called individualism. Consequences with social um, relations don't matter at all in individualistic societies like ours. And we dwell in the midst of a selfish culture. We do what's right for me. And most of the time in church life, the gospel is undoing this very tight knot because it's a problem. That's why gathered community, being church, worshipping together is so, so, so central and so crucial to our life and to our health. I wonder in what ways a selfish culture might affect the life of the church or those around us. But remember now, Paul is in prison, facing death. He's talking about life and death, not knowing any of the outcomes, and yet he is still dripping with overflowing joy. He's not demonstrating a needy, poor me, I'm in prison, will you come and help me or come and get me out of here? Please plead my case before the emperor. He is showing the Philippians a new way to be a human being. Why did Paul need to show the Philippians this way of joy, do you think? The Philippian culture at Philippi was a very proud culture. Now, you've been around proud people. They tend not to exhibit joy, right? It's just impossible for them. It's it's too beneath them. It's not, it's not becoming, is it? But a proud culture, which was famous for its special military identity as a military retirement town. So people who'd served in the Roman legions, who lived through it, were given these huge estates. They were strong. They were proud. It's one of the reasons why we'll come to next week. Paul will quote this hymn to Christ. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But taking the form of a slave, a slave in Philippi, are you kidding me? Yes, even to death on a cross. So not only did the town's Christians need to undo that knot of pride, which only the gospel can do, but that with arrogance and pride... Again, we know there is an absence of joy. And humanity is built for joy. The world will do everything to rob you of joy. Everything. Have you noticed the last few years how, how especially tense the news items have been? Have you noticed? I'm sure you have. There's a robbing of joy going on all the time. What are you going to do about that, church? What are you going to do about it? Is Christ overflowing? Or do you take that sense of robbing of joy into your life, into your relationships? How do you cope? How do we cope? The answer is simple. And I say this as a novice, but I do know the answer, and so do you. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Praise God. Praise God. And we know that the gospel must counter pride 
Because we've all been to funerals. And never once have we heard it uh, mentioned about the pride and arrogance of the deceased person. Not once. Other things are talked about. But never pride and arrogance. Why is that? Because we know that it's not good. We know that it's destructive. We know that it's an unhealthy vice. That the gospel comes in and transforms us out of our pride. And that's what's happening with the Philippian church. So last week we looked at three gospel priorities Paul, uh, we, we looked at the, the first three in chapter one, putting the fellowship of the gospel at the center of all our relationships. Number two, putting the priorities of the gospel at the center of our prayer life. And number three, putting the advance of the gospel at the center of our aspirations. And in this section that we've just read, Paul is now putting the converts of the gospel at the center of his principled self-denial. Because it's better to be with Christ, but it's better to be with you to remain. That's Paul's self-denial. He's putting them first. That's another way to say that chapter 1 of Philippians is showing us that we must put the gospel first. This must never be the exception, but the rule in the Christian life. So Paul is living out and giving out and writing out and praying out the power of the gospel in a real world situation. This is the gospel that reconciles sinners to a holy God. It's the gospel that provides a saviour to die for our sins and the sins of the whole world. To bring us into a forgiving, holy reconciliation, which is what communion is about. It's what communion is demonstrating that we have had our sins forgiven and we've trusted Christ and he says come and share in the feast. So without the gospel we are lost in our own sin and pride and, and arrogance. We're completely undone. We're completely ruined. Without the gospel we are nothing. So therefore, we put the gospel first in everything. Nothing, nothing displaces the gospel of Jesus Christ, church. Nothing. So, as we finish and prepare to come to communion, this is why Paul is concluding chapter 1 by strengthening this young church, this 10-year-old church, in heroic Christian faith and living for Christ. He says, stand firm in one spirit and mind. And in chapter 4, verse 2, we'll come to this later. He reminds us that there were squabbles and divisions between people within the church. It's one of the reasons that he's writing to them, these divisions. He says that, he's not to be, that they're not to be afraid of any of their opponents. Remember Job? Don't be afraid of those that oppose you, Job. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you, church, to believe on him. Oh, here we go. But also to suffer for him. So our culture says, this, this line comes from the rock band 
nirvana from the early 90s. Our culture says, ah, well, whatever, never mind. It's a great line in a song. But the gospel comes to us and says, ah, well, rejoice, never mind. Putting the gospel at the center. I want to finish with a man who was planning to be a missionary in the South Sea Islands decades and decades ago. An old Christian friend came to him and said, John, don't go. You'll be eaten by cannibals. No. This young missionary said to him, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years yourself and now your own prospect will soon be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. <laughs> Cheeky whippersnapper. He says, he continued to the older man, I confess that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise and it will be as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Therefore, he said, I will put the gospel first. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Praise God. Put the gospel first, church. All glory to Jesus Christ. And in a strange reversal, as we come to communion now, we may be eaten by worms or cannibals, but in communion we are invited to eat Christ. Unless you eat my flesh, unless you drink my blood, you have no part with me. And this is the invitation for believers to share in the family meal. Those that have said yes, and maybe Christ has touched you now and you know that this is the truth and the way and the life. And so the invitation is for you to come, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we eat Christ. And whether we live or whether we die, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Praise God. Praise God.